Romans 11. Verses 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, how it shows us your greatness and your goodness. And today, Lord, I need you to fill me afresh with your spirit that I would be led by you as I preach. And I pray that you would help me communicate clearly what your word says. God, give us hearts to receive it and not just be hearers of it, but to be doers of it, God, by your grace and your mercy. So cause your word to go forth now, Lord, in power and in might so that your name is lifted high. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll tell you what, it's going to be tough next week going to one service. This is going to be a packed place. Get here earlier, you got to sit in the penalty box. You know where the penalty box is, right? Front row. <laughs> That's a penalty box. Nobody ever wants to sit there. Um, you know, as believers, we understand what grace is. We understand what it is intellectually, but so many times we don't live as though we really understand grace. Um, I think sometimes we almost live like we're trying to earn God's grace or to say to God, look at how I live. You see, that was a good move on your part to extend your grace to me. Um, Or sometimes we just want to prove we're worthy, and it's so easy to fall into this works-focused thing to try to earn God's grace. Even though intellectually we know what it is, it is God's undeserved favor given to us by his choice. And, you know, what we see is that God's promises, all of his promises, and salvation are sure because they rest on God's sovereign grace, not on anything we do. You know, when we look at this, we see that in this book of Romans, as we're going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, something happened in chapter 9, and from chapters 9, 10, and 11, they're all tied together. And what happened was, Paul started answering the question of, okay, if Israel is God's chosen nation, then why have they rejected Jesus as their Messiah? And so Paul is answering that in those three chapters. In chapter 9, he says, well, because... Uh, God didn't promise to save all of the nation of Israel, but there were a elect few. There was this divine election is what we talked about. Then we get to chapter 10, and what happens in chapter 10 is that we see this picture of God says, but they made that choice. On, they, they chose to sin. That was their call. And now we get to chapter 11, and Paul's answering another question, and it's, listen, Because of Israel's sin, has God grown tired of Israel because of her constant disobedience, because of her constant failures, and has he rejected them because of that? All the promises that he made to them, is he saying, no, I'm done with you, you messed up long enough, I'm going a different route? And that's the question Paul's answering because, again, he's talking to who? Believers in the church in Rome, 
probably primarily Gentiles, and he's saying, okay, here's the answer to the question that you have. Why aren't more Jews coming to know Christ? What's the problem? What's causing that? And what we see here is that he's explaining that God hasn't rejected the nation of Israel. Okay, so what does that have to do with us? Right? We're living now at this time. Okay, Israel has problems. Israel had problems back then. How, what, how does that reflect on us? What does that, how does that impact our lives? Here's how it impacts it. Because if God made promises to Israel and he backed out of them, he reneged on them because they didn't live in a way that, uh, you know, constantly being obedient and faithful to God. If God would end that relationship with Israel, if he would say, nope, no more, then he could do the same thing for us, the promises he made for us. He could say, yeah, well, uh uh-uh, not going to work. So that's why it's so important for us to understand what God is doing in his word. I'll be honest, chapter 11 is a tough one for me because you go, God, what does this have to do with us today? And what I came to was this, that even in our unfaithfulness, even in our struggles with sin, those struggles cannot stop God from keeping his promises to us. It's not about us. It's about God. And it's about understanding the depth of grace that we all intellectually know what it is, but I know myself personally, I struggle with living in such a manner that I really understand it at times. And we'll talk about that. So this question becomes, has God rejected Israel? And Paul is responding to that. He's saying, no, God hasn't rejected Israel because of her sin. Am I still popping? A little bit. Should I try this right here? Does that work better? Here, I'm going to disconnect and I'll try. Hopefully the popping stops. Pretty awesome, huh? Do it all the time. (laughs) So what we have here is Paul is giving evidence that God has not given up on Israel. God made promises to her, even though she's unfaithful, disobeying, not receiving Christ as the Messiah that was promised, God hasn't given up on her. He's laying out these estimate, uh, these, this evidence of God's faithfulness to Israel, even though Israel is unfaithful. Take a look, God's word. We're going to go to chapter, uh, verse 1 in chapter 11 and work from there. I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's the point of chapter 11 right there, answering that question. By no means. For if I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not followed, or have not bowed the knee to Baal or Baal, whatever, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And then I picked Amos just as a quote, showing you that God had chosen Israel as his nation, that he was going to bring uh, the Messiah through and the gospel to all the world. It says, Amos 3, 2, You only I have known of all the families of the earth. That word known is talking about an intimate relationship. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And you go, wow, that doesn't sound like a very good relationship. Well, if your kids mess up, you love them when you discipline them. And that's what he's talking about there. He's saying, I love you. I chose you. And when you choose to walk in disobedience, yeah, I'm going to discipline you because I love you. So what is the evidence that God will not reject Israel even, because of, even though she has been unfaithful? Well, his first evidence is, is himself. He's saying, listen, I am a Jew, and God chose me. I am saved. I'm evidence number one. No, God has not rejected the Jews. Look at me. Then he goes on, and he says, listen, God's sovereign grace has always kept, always kept a remnant for for himself. There's always been a group of believers. God hasn't abandoned Israel. He's always had his people. And you see, he's talking about Elijah here. And he's saying, listen, remember way back when the prophets of Baal and Elijah calls fire down and all the prophets are killed. And then what does Elijah do? He runs for his life from Queen Jezebel. She says, I'm going to kill you. And basically, Elijah is whining. He's saying, I'm the only one God in all the world that follows you. Don't you kind of feel like that sometimes? When you look at the world and you think, boy, there's hardly anybody that believes in God. Look at what we're doing in our government and around the world. doesn't honor you, God. Are there any believers? What's happening? You know, you feel like, gosh, Lord, are we the only ones? Is it so small? And God just smiles and says, listen, i got a remnant all over the place, guys. I think we overestimate our value and underestimate God's power, don't we? And so what happens is, is that uh, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, God hasn't abandoned Israel. He's always kept a remnant of Jews who believe in him. Because remember, God did not promise to save the entire nation of Israel, but only the elect, only the ones that he had chose. So that's the picture that we have. And that's what he also is the evidence. God foreknew Israel. God chose Israel before time began. He took this heathen, Abram, chose to pour out his grace and his mercy and his love on him. Did not deserve it. And through Abraham, God made promises. There's going to come a nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless all the world. You have a job. And it's through you that I'm going to get this good news of the gospel that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in, at that time, the Messiah alone. And so what we see is that he's saying, listen, God chose Israel to be a special nation for him, to do what he desired to do. God did that knowing that Israel was going to be unfaithful. Do you realize that? God knows all things. Nothing surprises God. He still chose Israel. Israel, even though he knew they would walk in unbelief, even though he knew that they would be unfaithful, even though he knew that they would sin, that they would reject the Messiah, God still chose Israel because it's not about 
Israel. It's about God. And that's the point that we're going to find in this message. God has called us. God has called us. And even when we're unfaithful, he will be faithful to us because that's what grace is all about. God's promises and salvation are sure because they rest on God's sovereign grace, not anything we do or don't do. As I said, it's about God. Think about this. If salvation is a joint effort, God has to do his part, and then I have to do my part in order to be saved. If it's a joint effort, then what Paul is saying here is then grace isn't grace. If you play any role in your salvation with regards to earning it, then grace isn't grace. It can't be. Think about it this way. Some people will say that, well, divine, you know, they say, well, it's clear in Scripture that it shows that God has uh, chosen people, that there's predestination, there's election. Well, how God did that was God looked down through time and he saw who was going to choose to receive the gift of salvation by their own free will without God intervening in any way. And then those are the ones he decided to put in his chosen list. Well, the problem with that is this then God didn't choose someone according to grace. But rather, he chose them because of something they did. I had faith. I heard this gospel message, and I believed it. And it's because of that that God saved me. It was about me and my free will making this decision without God interfering in any way, shape, or form. And so what God did then is he looked over through time and he said, hey, guess what? I knew you were going to do that, so now I'm going to call you as a chosen one. But God is just simply reacting there. He's not sovereign over that. He's, it's not about grace. It's about what we do, and then we can boast about it. That's the point we see over and over in Scripture, that God does this work. He saves us. And it's not about us. It's not what we do to earn our salvation. Otherwise, we could boast. It says that over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I was smart enough to figure it all out. And you know what? I came to know Jesus, and you know, like I did when I first uh, heard the gospel, and God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. <laughs> right? So what happens is, is that Paul is saying, listen, it is not about your works. It, you have nothing to do with your salvation and earning it. And Because if that were true, then grace isn't grace. God is just reacting. He's the secondary measure. Because you are primary, because you are the one who control all things in your destiny. And that's contrary to what we saw in Romans chapter 9. People like to skip over chapter 9 because it makes them uncomfortable. But we have to read through the whole word of God. That's why 9, 10, and 11 are all tied together in one section. So what we see is that God is the one. It is he who does this work. He is the one who chooses. And he is the one who extends this grace that is so amazing that we know the word, we understand what it means, but seldom do we really live by it. And I'll give you a quickie. Do you think God loves you more when you're good than when you're struggling? Because if you believe that, you don't understand grace. 
amazing grace. So what happened? What was going on here? What was happening in this nation of Israel? She chose to not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, rejected him, crucified him, separated. Was God caught off guard? Wow, didn't see that coming. No, what we see here in Scripture is part of God's divine plan was that he was going to reach the Gentiles, the people who were not Jewish people. He was going to reach the Gentiles because of the Jewish people's unbelief and unfaithfulness. You say, well, how can you say that? Because that's what it says in Romans chapter 11. Look at this. Romans chapter 11, 7 through 12. Again, it's so important to read the word of God in context, to understand what is happening. What is the question being answered? Who is he speaking to? What's occurring? It says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. You remember earlier in chapter 9, it's talking about how Israel was looking for righteousness through their good works, through following the law, and they didn't find it. And it says, and the Gentiles, who weren't even pursuing righteousness, found it. And so he's coming back to that. He says, uh, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They were trying to seek salvation through works, through following the law. The elect, what he's talking about there is Jews like Paul, part of the Jewish nation, and he was saved. So he's saying the elect, Jews like Paul, obtained it. But the rest, the rest of who? The nation of Israel. There were few that God had elected from the nation of Israel, Jews. But the rest were hardened, it says. We don't like those words, but they're in the word of God. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. So the ones that did not receive the gift of salvation, there was a stupor that came upon them. What does that mean? They were unable to perceive and understand spiritual truth. They didn't get it because they weren't elect. And what happens is, is it goes on and says, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 29.4. So God knew this in advance. It was part of his plan. This didn't catch God off guard that the Jews were going to reject Jesus as Messiah. He had a plan, and it was playing right into that plan. It goes on. Verse 9, and David says, let their table. What, what does that, let their table? Let Israel's table. A table was always a picture of abundance, of blessing. We talk about the, the wedding feast of the lamb, right? So this picture of a table was this blessing, this good thing. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs. What does he mean by that? He's talking about, listen, there's going to be a hardening, and these Jews will not understand the gospel. I mean, if you've ever seen a, a beautiful Seder service, it's pointing to Jesus. And they can't see it. They, it they're, they're blinded to it. And so what's happening is, is he's saying, listen, uh, they're gonna, I'm going to keep them blinded, and what's going to happen is, is that they're going to break their backs trying to earn salvation through works. That's a heavy thing, isn't it? I was part of a, a, a church that you never knew when you did enough good deeds to earn heaven. That's what it was. And the idea that, well, did I do enough? Did I do, do I need to do more in order to be saved and made right with God? That's a burden. That's heavy. 
And there's the guilt of every time saying, oh, no, i got to do this now. And that's what he's talking about. These Jews were trying to uh, find their salvation through and their righteousness through their works. And it was burdensome. It was, it was heavy on them. It weighed on them. And that was part of God's plan. And look what it says. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did they struggle in order that God might reject them? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's what I was telling you about. No, no, no. Through Israel's rejection of Christ as Messiah, the gospel came to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. There was a purpose for that. That Israel would become jealous is what it's saying here. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What does this section of Scripture mean? What he's talking about is this, that the gospel was initially restricted to the Jewish people, and they were called by God to take this gospel to the nations. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God had a purpose for calling, uh, calling Israel, to choose Israel, that they were going to be the nation, the people that were going to take this uh, gospel to the whole world, that it would be a blessing to the world. But what Israel did was they didn't, they didn't, they, they lost sight of this reason. And what happened was, instead of taking it out, they closed ranks like this. It's all about us. Remember that? We see over and over in the New Testament how the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles, right? No, we're not going to do that. They, they would go so far as to say there was a city full of Samaritans. A Samaritan is somebody who has a Jewish and a Gentile parent. And they would walk out of the way so they wouldn't even go through the town that the Samaritans were in. You see, they weren't doing what God had called them to do, to take the gospel to the nations. They instead pulled in, and because of that, God said, you can't hinder this thing called the gospel. I'll take it. I'll take care of it. I'll send it out. I'll send it forth. And so what we see is that because of Israel's disobedience, God extended this gospel to the Gentiles, and they came in droves. This church is filled with Gentiles who came to know Jesus. I'm guessing a Jewish person didn't share the gospel with you. So what happens is, is that God made this gospel available. And then what occurred is these Gentiles who received the gift of salvation by God's grace got all these blessings, these riches, as it says in here. Rather, through this trespass of salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make the Jews jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches to the world, what are the riches what are the riches talked about here that the Gentiles received when they received the gospel? Well, how about these for riches? Forgiveness of sin. Wow. There is no more condemnation for those who believe. That's, those are riches right there. How about the fact that you are adopted into the family? They call it true Israel. You're adopted into the family. All the promises that God made to Israel, 
Those were promises that he made to those who would believe and receive the gift of salvation. They were adopted into the family of God. They call it true Israelites, true Jews. And so what we see is this picture of, of these blessings, these, these uh, riches that are being poured out. What about this? If you're a believer today, the word of God says that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. What a wealth for all of us, amen? That he dwells within all believers. Wow. I loved it when somebody said, what makes a building a palace is not how ornate it is, but who lives inside of it. Right? And so we look at that and we say, you know, these are the riches that you're talking about. Reconciliation with God. Jesus as your friend and your Lord and your Savior. Those are the riches that were extended to the world, to, to the Gentiles. Why? It says here, to make the Jews jealous. To make the Jews jealous. They would see what was theirs, what God had promised them. And they decided, nope, we're not going to do those things. We're going to kind of take this whole uh, gospel and, and protect it, be it, cause it to be for ourselves. And so then the blessings were given as the Gentiles received the gift of salvation, and now the Jews could become jealous is what is the purpose that God has for that, to make the Jews jealous. Say, look at what they have. You know what? God still does that today. God still does that today. Maybe before you knew Christ, that happened in your life. You saw a Christian and you go, why are they so at peace? What do they have that I don't have? I want that. You see, we look at jealousy and we think it's always negative. It's not always negative. And that's the jealousy he's talking about here. These Jews would see the blessings of the Lord upon the Gentiles who by God's grace through faith in Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior, would receive because of God's grace. And they would become jealous of that. They say, I want that. And God was going to use that jealousy to bring great numbers of Jewish people to the Lord for the purpose of blessing the world. What about us? You know, I think about my life and I think, am I living in such a way that people are jealous of what I have? You know, they look at me and they say, that guy, he's got peace. This world's coming apart at the seams, and why does this guy seem to have joy? I don't get that. What about love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, as God, by his grace, is working that into my life? Do people see that kind of stuff in my life, and are they jealous of me? Because God uses that to draw people to himself. He used that to draw me to himself. I didn't have a peace. I was looking for satisfaction in everything other than God. And there were Christians around me. And it bothered me because they seemed to be so happy without things that I thought you needed in order to be happy. And I became jealous. And that's what God is talking about here. That the blessings of salvation would cause, in this case, the, the Jewish people to say, we're going to turn to Jesus for our Messiah. And for our lives today, People will look at them and say, I want to I know the Savior. What about your marriage? Does our, do our marriages reflect the glory of God? We're not talking about perfection. We're all screwed up in this church, everyone. We all got our problems. 
That's just the truth. But do we rely on God? Do we trust him to do miracles of, of healing marriages, of healing broken lives as a testimony? You know, parenting. I tell people this all the time. You're the perfect parent for your kids, but you won't parent perfectly. You're the perfect parent because God gave them to you. And he is all wise and all knowing. So he gave those children to you because you're the perfect parent for them. Otherwise, God would have given them someone else. But you won't parent perfectly. But does our parenting, do our marriages, do the way we respond to work, do the way we respond to rising gas prices and our retirement fund crashing and burning by 30%, do we respond in such a way that people who are observing our life are jealous of what we have? Because that's what God is using in in this situation. And he still uses it today. And God can do that work in us. Are they jealous? If we go back, the main point of Romans chapter 11 is this. God is not finished with Israel. He's not done with her. He hasn't rejected her. Not as a nation or as individuals. In spite, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, of her unbelief, her struggle with sin. In spite of all that, God has not given up on her. That is amazing. Take a look at what it says in God's word, going, continuing on. Chapter 11, verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. There's that word again. There's that word. We learn through, as we're studying God's word, if we see a consistent word, they're they're tied together somehow. And here Paul is a Jewish person, and he's ministering to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are coming to Christ. And he's saying by the Spirit of God that God is saving the Gentiles in order to get the Jews jealous of what God is doing in their midst. And Paul's saying, yeah, I'm doing what God called the Jews to do. And I'm I'm praying that my ministry to the Gentiles will get the Jewish people, my brothers in in nationality, will get them jealous. He goes, thus, uh, I'm uh, verse fourteen. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus have some of them save some of them, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from dead from the dead? If the dough is offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. There's a lot of discussion on what that means, especially the uh, life from the dead. What does that mean? Um, my understanding of it is this that God is going to fulfill all that He promised to Israel and put her back into a place of favor. And that Jews in large numbers, will repent and come to faith in Christ and somehow that will cause a greater blessing to the world. That's my best interpretation. I encourage you to do this. Go into the Word of God. Study it yourself. Don't just believe what I say up front. Go into the Word and study it. But that's the best that I can come up with in that particular, uh, those particular verses. So what we see is God has not given up on Israel. He's answering the question he started the chapter with that God sovereignly chose Israel out of all the nations in the world 
and he made a bunch of covenant promises with Israel that he would make her a great nation in the world through whom the Messiah would come and the gospel would go forth. And he did that even though he knew before it ever happened that they would be unfaithful, that they would be disobedient, that they would struggle with sin. And you know what? The same thing is true about you. God knew. God knew all your struggles. Nothing's surprising him. He still chose you. Even though you have all these struggles in your life, you're wrestling with how much your heart can grow cold. You struggle, you know, you stumble in things. And yet God made promises to you. Take a look at God's word. Hebrews 10, 17. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Do you really believe that? Do you live like that's true? Or does the enemy come in there and cause you to say, well, you know, you really messed up. You weren't in the Bible for like four hours today. So you're probably not a believer. It's all about works, right? Look at what Spurgeon said. According to this gracious covenant, the Lord treats his people as if they had never sinned. Practically, he forgets all their trespasses. Sins of all kinds, he treats as if they had never been, as if they were quite erased from his memory. Oh, miracle of grace. Amazing grace. You see, if you preach grace properly, it's going to sound like a license to sin. But it's not. Not at all. Because God calls us to holiness. But we're talking about salvation here. And he's saying grace is this amazing thing, is what Spurgeon is saying. This is how God views you. And he goes on and he says, Our God ignores our sin now that the sacrifice of Jesus has ratified the covenant. Jesus' death on the cross, all that God had promised would come is sure because of Christ's death on the cross where the great exchange happened. If you're a believer today, what happened is your sins were considered as if they were Christ and Christ was punished for them. And then God took Jesus' righteousness and considered it as if you were perfect and without sin. Wow! That's the great exchange. And he's saying, I'm looking at you, I'm delighting in you. Because the covenant that I made all the way back then was, was signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus on the cross when he rose from the dead. He said, it's done. He, it's all paid. If you're a believer today, it's done. And he goes on. We may rejoice in him without fear that he will be provoked to anger against us because of our iniquities. Do you ever feel that way? You know, you, you really stumble, you struggle, and you question whether you're even saved. Because you're struggling. And what Spurgeon is saying is, that, no. It's not about you. It's about God and his grace. It's about God. It goes on. See, he puts us among the children. He accepts us as righteous. He takes delight in us as if we were perfectly holy. Another question for you. Do you really believe 24-7 that God delights in you? Do you? All the time? I mean, as a parent, he's going to discipline us. But it says here that God delights in us. Do you believe that? Or does your view of God delighting on you depend on how you, 
how good you live. Because then you don't understand grace. Then you don't understand grace. Because grace is about this thing that God has done in our lives. That he has done this work. And it's amazing because we are made right with him. And he delights in us. He rejoices in us because of who we are in Christ. And that's consistent. It doesn't fluctuate by how we live. By our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness. Our obedience or our disobedience. God's love, God's grace is constant. And that's why I say we understand what this word grace means, but the depth of it, we don't live by that. The fact that God delights in you. He delights in you. That's what his word says. Because of grace, even our unfaithfulness will not stop God from keeping his promises to us. Hear that, brothers and sisters, because that's grace. That's a great God. Listen, brothers and sisters, your good works did not earn his favor. They did not earn grace, and they did not earn his love. And your failures do not forfeit his grace, his love, his favor. Because it's about God, not you. That's why I say, if you think that God loves you more when you're good, then you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace. You see, when we are unfaithful and when we are disobedient, at that point, grace is required, right? And grace alone is sufficient. We need God's grace every moment of every day. And when we fail in particular, we see how desperately we need it. And God receives this incredible glory when his free grace is joyfully received by his people in in the midst of failure, in the midst of struggling. Because what do we think? If it were me, I would have left me a long time ago. But he doesn't. That's grace. That's the grace of God. And brothers and sisters, if you've ever stumbled and fallen and repented and received the grace of God, I'll tell you, grace is never more sweet than right then, isn't it? It's so sweet. God forgive me. Yep, it's done. Oh, that grace of God is so sweet. And it brings him great glory. You would forgive someone like Dan? You would even know someone like Dan? How could that be? Well, it's my grace. It's my grace. And Dan, you desperately need it, and I'll give it to you. You see, he's the one who is glorified because he is the giver. And I am the receiver of God's grace. And what does that do? Hopefully that will bring humility in our lives. Realizing how desperately we need God's grace. And hopefully it will cause us to cling to Christ more and more every moment of every day. Because we see how much we need God's grace. And he won't reject us. He won't push us away. He'll delight in us. That's why I say if you preach grace correctly, it seems like a license to sin, but it's not. Because now we want to walk in obedience to the word of God, not because we're trying to earn something, not because we're trying to prove something, but because we love our Lord. And why would I want to do anything that hurts him? I wouldn't. He can love somebody like me. I don't want to hurt him. 
Brothers and sisters, God's grace and love are not earned in part or in whole. His grace and his love are only accepted with thankfulness and praise. We are the receivers. That's what it is. We receive it. And even our unfaithfulness will not stop God from keeping his promises to us. Even that. That's why our salvation and our eternal security are in God's grace, his sovereign grace, not any of the works that we do or don't do. It's always about God. And the depth of grace is absolutely phenomenal that we get our heads around it. I want to close with this. I read an article. It was kind of funny, actually. Um, what it was was it had a picture, and it had a picture of Joel Olstein, and it said, I am wealthy. I am handsome. I am uh, prosperous. I am, right? And it had a whole list of all those things. And right next to it, it had a picture of Paul, and it said, I am a wretch. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. That was it. And it just kind of bringing it all together. And this lady, her name was Kira Davis, wrote this, and I wanted to read it in conclusion. When I recognize that I am helpless before the Almighty, that I am helpless against my sin on my own, that I am not built for eternity and I am not equipped for holiness, I am thus able to recognize that there is one who can lift me out of my sin. There is one who can equip me for holiness and eternity. I can look to him with clarity rather than looking into my own muddy insides. It is only when you are aware of your abject wretchedness that you can truly begin to understand just how incredible and marvelous it is to be loved by one who should be casting you away. You are worthy because Jesus makes it so. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so incredible. Lord, help us to understand the depth of grace. Lord, help us not to just understand it intellectually, but I pray you would work that deep into our hearts, that as the enemy comes against us, as our own flesh comes against us, to question your grace towards us, your delight in us because of Christ. God, please help us to put our, take our thoughts captive and to remember who we are in Christ. God, help us to understand grace. Help us to live in that truth in such a way that it will if affect the people around us, that they'll be jealous of us, God, so that your name would be exalted in all the earth. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and continue.